Welcome, one and all, to the standard Q and Array, as named by our lovely Sapala, our Billy. Uh, we wanted to, at the end of seasons, uh, take some time to answer some questions from listeners. We opened it up to our Discord chat, and we got some fabulous questions. Uh, we also got some questions from people at the table, and we wanted to at least dig through some of them. We won't be able to get to all of them, unfortunately, because we've got asked probably about, I think my count was 40 questions in total. Something like that. So we wanted to get some ones answered by the table themselves, and then we have some specific player ones. Uh, if for some reason this is the first episode that you're listening into, uh, go back and listen to the season, because there will be spoilers here. Yeah. Absolutely spoiler yeah. alert. <laughs> yeah, if you're reading out, if you're listening to this out of order, come on now, honestly. Yeah. It's a serial, it's not a series. We ain't doing some sitcom shit. Exactly. Uh, in case you needed to know the people behind the show, uh, my name is Patrick, I played Hank, and I was the co-DM of season one. Tony, why don't you introduce yourself and pass the ball to someone else after? Uh, yeah, uh, my name is Tony, and I played uh, everybody's lovable Eldrin sorcerer, Shift. Tia, sorry. <clears throat> Hannah, who did you play? <laughs> <laughs> my name is Hannah, I played Tia, a cute little frog lady. Mike. <laughs> I'm Mike, and uh, I play the big dumb oaf uh, mammoth man. Arger from Clan Fan. And uh Billy, please take it away. Uh I'm Billy and I play the well-meaning naive Zapala. Uh Steph. I'm Steph and for season 1 I was the DM and for season 2 I will be playing Ari. For those of you that have listened to the season so far and joined us and made it all the way to this episode uh from everyone at the table, sincerely thank you. Uh it yeah, is sure. a pleasure Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And a joy. Yeah, I mean, I know that this was Steph's big opening moment with Fantasy Banjo. Aw, shucks. Uh, she started off as a listener for one of our shows, and we became friends over the years. And I'm very proud to see her take the reins on a show. And, you know, it's just, it's, it, makes, it makes the heart warm. Because it's like, <laughs> yeah. Are you trying to make me cry and we're just in a Q&A? What are you doing? Yeah, no, that's exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah! It makes for a better show. Whole episode, just crying. Take your feelings and put them way deep down inside like the rest of us Irish folks. <laughs> you're right, you're right. Sti stiffen up. Here we go. Until it's <laughs> mental illness, just like everyone else. Let's get that toxic masculinity going on. <laughs> With like extra <laughs> S's and C's and X's like I had there. <laughs> Uh, I'd also like to take the moment to welcome some of our other new members to Fantasy Banjo. Uh, Mike, Billy, and Hannah. Really, Fantasy Banjo, as far as OG members in this particular production, is just me and Pat. And this is the first time that we've worked with any of you. And I just before we start getting into the nitty gritty and all the questions, I'd just like to say right off the bat that it has been uh, a terrible experience and I'm never going to work with you again. <laughs> <laughs> Says the guy playing four different characters. Right? <laughs> no, no. I, and on a serious note, though, this has been uh, quite, quite the journey, quite an amazing journey with you folks. And uh, I, I love each and every one of you. And I'm excited for season two uh, because you guys destroyed season one in a good way. I'm saying, in a Yay, good way. we destroyed you it. Wrecked, guys. We wrecked it, but like yes. a good wreck. 
Yeah. I mean, technically, we did destroy part of a kingdom. I mean, yeah, <laughs> this, this is true. <laughs> but no, I mean, this is by far the best team. I've only done two podcasts, but this is the best team that I've had for doing podcasting with so, so far. And um, <laughs> honestly, it's been a real honor working with a team that's dedicated and passionate. And we're all on the same page. Y'all showed up when you were supposed to show up. You did the work. And I think this production is a, a real big team effort. And without it, you know, you and uh, Tony, you and, and Pat, you were both big behind the scenes, you know, editor and fully work. The sound quality would not be the same without you guys working there behind the scenes with your deep, deep bubble grease and, and earball skills. So um, thank you. I want I want you guys to know that um, the quality would not be what it is without you. Absolutely. Thankfully, you know, my earballs only had to, like, construct the story out of all of our bullshit. Whereas Tony's <laughs> earballs was the actual, like, production level, like, high quality sounds and music that we're hearing. Yeah, get the, get the fuck out of retail and get a production job. <laughs> <laughs> See, next season we're going to have so much more fully. We're going to have a lot of tap No, Billy, have no. Things. <laughs> Billy, no. <laughs> Billy, no. Don't, don't put expectations on season two, all right? I don't need that much pressure. Pat, I think every seam has to have very complicated sound descriptors. Can that? Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> it tumbled down the stairs and made the sound of 57 nails falling onto ice cube trays. Exactly 57. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. All right, that's enough, that's enough circle jerking. Let's get to the questions. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Speaking of circle jerking. Woo! <laughs> I mean, we can. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm comfortable with stuff. I don't know about the rest of you, so. <laughs> that's kind of an uh, apt uh, segue into the question. This is a question from Grinny, who is a wonderful person and actually one of the mods of the Fantasy Banjo channel. Uh, she Love you, Grin. asked us as a group... Was there any post-recording rituals that we did together or on your own? And if yes, what were they? Um, I feel like a lot of what we did pretty much immediately together, and I think is something that Pat helped to establish was like a likes and wishes sharing about the table. It was almost like a small decompress after every session to find out what was working um, story-wise, what wasn't working, um, what everybody really enjoyed about the session, you know, if anyone had any feelings about things that had occurred, because sometimes we really do punch each other in the feels on this show. Just just a bit. Yeah, so we'd have a small decompression after each episode for as much as we can. And then me personally, uh, because it's, it's late here, we're on different time zones, uh, I would pretty much immediately leave and then take a shower and then go into a coma. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I pretty much reiterate what Steph said. Um, we would have a little round table chat plan next show next next show what worked what didn't work what needs to be fixed what needs to be blah 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 but uh yeah it was pretty much just a post-mortem like any production team you always have a little chat post-mortem we died like after chat because we kill it every like time after. we record <laughs> stuff uh, we kill it. i mean Tony <laughs> probably knows this pretty well because uh, you've come from some form of production work uh in some capacity when you, when you work in video or, or media like I do, there's always a little chat afterward like, well, what did we do right? What did we do wrong? What needs to be fixed? And then, like I said, the time zone dif- difference does come into play later on. But it's fairly similar to a lot of production work that I've done where you have some form of uh, powwow afterward. Hannah and Billy, though, didn't you guys do like special after chats? Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we would usually hang out on the chat for like, 
maybe half an hour after kind of decompress and talk about oh, what our... bitch, it's been a lot more than half an hour. I mean, that's fair. <laughs> um, it sometimes would, it, would, it would go for a lot longer. Yeah, that's fair. I live with Hannah. I can attest that there are some of them that lasted two and a half hours. <laughs> that's yeah. fair. Uh, but we would, like, throw out theories and we would, like chat in general but like we would throw it a lot of our like our initial would be like oh my god what just happened like what do we do with that like what do you think is going to happen next like how do, how how the hell we're going to do this like, honestly we... it's kind of like uh, our tea time <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah it is you spill the tea all the tea yeah <laughs> that's something that i'm actually very thankful for billy cuz i live with hannah and i know that after a session my actual like post session ritual is to shut the fuck up <laughs> because I've been talking for, you know, two to four hours. Hmm. And I'm also wearing like the player hat and the co DM hat and also like the editor hat. So like when I'm done with recording, it's like, cool, I'm going to stay silent for like 30 minutes and just like relax and just kind of like, whoo. <laughs> and I don't want to talk about anything. Like Hannah would come <laughs> in and be like, so what'd you think? It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, with me and you, we have different, like, after a social interaction, you're like, cool, I need to chill out, watch a show, do nothing, and I get energized from social interaction, so I'm like, me too. Cool, my energy just went, like, ten times higher than it normally Sometimes is. it takes me hours to chill out after our sessions, and I'll just lay in bed, like, what do I do next? So I'm, I'm looking forward <laughs> to, uh... Crashing your tea time now that I'm going to be a player. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Hannah basically Jack Black's in the room like, yeah! I'm like, let's do it! <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, nah, 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 nah. Like I <laughs> Tony, any uh, individual ones that you do on your side? Uh, I finished my drink. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty standard. Thanks, Tony. Yeah. <laughs> He goes, yeah, I switched the harder stuff after what you guys put me through. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why Tony drinks. <laughs> Another question. Uh, this one actually came from Babkit, uh, who, if you watch the Fantasy Banjo Twitch streams, uh, she's the one that did Dom's artwork for the boys' Friday night streams. The pretty boy, Dom. Yeah, I love them. I would say it, it, it's the prettiest of the pictures in the sense of, like, if we were playing Dream Daddy, that would be a character. Yeah. Dom <laughs> Daddy, for sure. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, the artist that did uh, Tony and, uh, and mine definitely went more cartoony with it, which I absolutely love, because I love the way that my guy looks. I love the way that Tony's guys looks. But, like, Dom's looks so dreamy. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, he's like, um, a shoujo. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and I love it. He's got, like, long, flowing locks. That's real life, too. He looks like one of those characters that's going to be like, well, let me take you, my princess. Mm. <laughs> he, <laughs> this, this man will show you the world. And bitch about it the whole <laughs> way. I love you, Dom. <laughs> Babkit asked, uh, I would like to know what everyone's favorite improv moment was. It's uh, all improv. For ourselves or for someone else, or just in general. Open, open table. She did not specify. So the first one that pops into my head is the um, the whole Sapala and Arger conversation when Arger realizes like he's been essentially frozen. Like when he comes to realize that he's been frozen in ice for however long, and that like all his the people that he's ever known is dead. He's going through this crisis. And then Sapala comes to the rescue and they have their like 
their buddy cop moment on the beach and like yeah that's since that whole scene was completely improvised i would say that that is my my pick that entire scene of like when sapala and arger essentially become best friends <laughs> fist bump bro, bro fist bump <laughs> boop, boop, they're go- they're going the same way on my camera. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not to jump into Billy's shoes here, but Billy and I have been D- playing D and D together for many years. I guess it's just we have a natural rapport of like when one of us picks a topic up, the other one's pretty good at like carrying the baton to the next step of the story and back and forth. But feel free to fill in on that, Billy. No, I mean you hit it right nail in the head. I mean we've had we had good chemistry and our our improvisational skills kind of pick up on each other pretty well for D&D which I think is very useful like I I know when you're doing something and I I I get that so and I think you can pretty much get that from me too but uh, that's very sweet of you to say Tony I appreciate that hearts hearts to Tony <laughs> yeah well, I feel like there's been some emotional weight gravity to the show based off of like the the origin story episodes like that kind of did a, a good job of like building you know pathos for each individual character but i don't feel like we actually had any emotional gravity with the team or like interactions between team members until that occurred and i feel like that kind of elevated the entire show because now there's there's weight connecting the team members right there's that kind of i don't know that emotional gravitas between characters now and now like i feel like that's when the team started actually like working as a team um it's like I, this is gonna go i know this is gonna go way left field but i've been re-watching all the mission impossibles uh, because <laughs> my because my girlfriend hasn't seen any of them so i've been forcing her to watch them with me fair and you know, I feel like the first couple of movies of Mission Impossibles were really lost. Like, there was no identity to the Mission Impossible franchise until the creators of, or the, you know, whoever owned the franchise realized that, like, one of the biggest a- elements that they have that they need to make sure that they have in every movie is a team that people feel connected with, that people care about. And I feel like that is, that was the moment in season one that gave that particular element to our audience was like the audience cares not only about us as individuals, but us as a team. As a team. Yeah. And I feel like that, that was a huge evolution of the show. Nice. I was hoping that the the example wouldn't get worse than uh, Mission Impossible because I thought you were about to bust out like, it's like Fast and the Furious, you know, where it's like, it's about the family. (laughs) It's all, about family. <laughs> it's all about family and living your life one quarter mile at a time, you know? Oh, my God. <laughs> um, although, but back back to the, the uh, compliment aside, I, again, I do appreciate that, Tony. But I would say for me, in terms of the best role play moment for me, I actually really loved when it started to be interacting between two characters who hadn't been in contact with another uh, one another a lot. Like the, the moment, I, I say this again, with Arger and... Arjun Schiff with the high five incident, <laughs> um, and just sort of how that went, and sort of just rolled with it. And it's like, oh, we've we've busted your arm. It's as like, soon as you said that, my shoulder started hurting. I got like phantom pain. Uh, on my side, it was actually uh, Steph's ability to turn a NPC that could have been potentially like a toss away character into someone very important. 
uh, to the group. And I'm going to drop the name right now. May, long may he live, Thomas. Sir Thomas! Sir Thomas! <laughs> he was 100% an improv character initially. And I think that those are some of the ones, like, especially as a player, and, like, you know, putting the DM hat aside and looking from the player's perspective, there's something innate that you want to gravitate to where there's, like, that almost like a pet NPC of, like, Bob the Goblin. Bob the, the Goblin. The DM doesn't care about <laughs> at all, but for some reason the party just goes, like, yes, we will protect him with our lives. And, like, just, <laughs> they just want to hold him close because the DM, on a whim, just kind of went, like, uh, this is the character, and yeah... And something about that character just spoke to all of us as players. And like, even when I believe that we were all listening to the origin episodes before we actually released them to the public, everyone sat and in our group chat was like, Thomas needs to become a knight. And that needs to be an important <laughs> thing. <laughs> we That's have true. a plot, yeah, folks. And I, I hear you, so... <laughs> yeah, like, everyone in the group kind of fell in love with, a, with Thomas to a certain degree. And to have him come back in a significant role, especially for Tia's story, uh, was just very heartwarming and then heartbreaking and then heartwarming again. That's how I do. <laughs> this was the hot pocket of heartwarmings. <laughs> you burned your mouth sometimes and it's frozen in the middle. <laughs> oh, good Lord. I think um, some of my favorite improv moments uh, were definitely between like Hank and Arger like, explaining shit to Arger because he didn't know how the world worked. Like, that dynamic between you two was probably some of my favorite shit. Uh, and that Hank was clearly agitated by being group dad, but also, like, begrudgingly accepted role of group dad. Just leading Arger around. Uh, I think Mike did a really great job of being like, but what's this? <laughs> oh. But what's this? <laughs> like, without it being ridiculous, I, I just thought it was very fun. Um, that and the moment where Arjun and Sapala were on the beach screaming, that had to be, yeah. like, one of my favorite <laughs> ah, 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 improv moments. And at the time, I was literally just, like, shitting myself laughing. It was yes, you were. brutal. <laughs> yeah, you were, you were literally losing your mind. It was great. Uh, brutal. <laughs> so I was going to um, mention how we had almost an entire episode talking about poop. <laughs> We had to cut cut a lot of that episode. See, that was not my favorite improv moment. That was the moment where I felt like a bad person. It was so fun to watch you cringe and everybody else just laugh at their ass off as we just talked about poop for like an hour. (laughs) Hashtag D&D's problems. Subscribe to our Patreon if you want to hear all the poop conversation. Yeah, it's it's mostly poop and weird kinky stuff, so you're welcome. (laughs) Both are good. Both are good. Why not both? Uh, I guess my favorite improv moment, it's it's kind of a couple of things, but I'm assuming this is an improv on your side, DM-wise, Steph, was just digging the knife in with uh, us fucking up uh, Thomas's leg. That was so heart-wrenching, but, like, you didn't pull back. You just were like, yeah, you fucked. His leg's fucked. And it was like, that was just a reaction to what happened. So I'm assuming there was some level of improv to it where... Mm, well, uh, every skill challenge has a success story and a failure story, and so his failure story was set. You falling on him, though, that wasn't set. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> Just like Thomas's leg is no longer set. 
Can I pull back the curtain a little bit on that one, too? Pull it back. Pull it back, Pat. Go ahead. So, uh, Steph was talking to me about that skill challenge beforehand. And we had the conversation of, like, oh, well, what happens if you pass? What happens if you fail? And as soon as she's like, well, what happens if uh, they fail? And I was immediately like, do something to Thomas. And I feel like yeah. I was, like, and such was a like, corrupting okay. bastard. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, I I got yep. to see... That, that feels like you, Pat. <laughs> yeah. You monster. It does not feel like Steph. It does... No, yeah. You, you want to protect him. And I said that, and, like, my DM brain went, Because I've done that to players. Yeah, but then I took it up another notch. You were like, do something to Thomas. Like, like maybe he gets not unconscious, but I went... No, I'm gonna make it worse. I'm gonna get him mangled so he can't be a knight anymore. And well, Pat was like, "That's like the darkest storyline." <laughs> but I felt it, it was like such a leopard's eating my face moment because it was the fact that like I've done that to Tony on other shows and other games in our yeah. past, and I've done that to Hannah too in our personal games. And it was like, haha, this is such a great tool for a DM. And then it happened to me and it was like, no, Thomas, why would I do this? <laughs> yeah. Well, as, soon as, I, as soon as I reacted with, actually, this is what I think I'm going to do. He was like, oh, that's way worse than what I thought you would be doing. I was like, <laughs> it's that Simpsons joke when Nelson goes, haha, to the mirror. And then he goes, that hurt. No wonder yeah, no yeah, yeah. That's exactly what it felt like. <laughs> it's like, whoa, oh, that's what that's like. <laughs> Is this what I've been doing to people this whole time? <laughs> no wonder I'm in here. I belong in here. Yeah. So this next one might be a tough one for everyone. But uh, Senimer in our Discord asked us, what is your favorite Nat 1 occurrence? Mm. And there was a lot of them to choose mm. from. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, can't remember, I can't even remember what roles. Well, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you mine. i tell you my favorite Nat 1. Mm-hmm. Uh, was Pat falling through the ceiling into <laughs> Brooke's kitchen with oh, that fucking right. collar oh, and man. just destroying that kitchen? <laughs> I felt so bad. Yeah. That's also I. I also choose that kitchen's wife. <laughs> hey man, season two. I'm feeling the same. Honestly, that was that the the knife in in Hank's gut. Yeah, that was actually great. Yeah. Like, there's been plenty of fails that have been comical. Like, on the same boat, uh, the stare-off ending with Hank slipping off the side of the boat. Yeah. But I don't, I don't recall that being a one. I think I just missed the check. I think you just missed the check, yeah. I going to say, I don't really... Uh, I have a lot of trouble remembering the natural ones. Yeah. We black them out because they're traumatic. Um. Well, partially, but I, I think if I had to pick one, I, I would say actually the one from the epilogue, just for the sheer fact that it, it just made Ari's situation so much more awkward. <laughs> That like your first like your first role was a natural one in this camp in this campaign that you've joined, and it's yeah. just like you you automatically hit. It's like <laughs> nope you you have become one of us right immediately. You've That's you've not bad. you have taken your you have taken your mark with the rest of us. <laughs> you your must be scar. loved. We now awkwardly love you. What is love? Watch us have know. a guest for season two, and they immediately get a one. Also, and it's just like you're part of the club. <laughs> Welcome. This is an initiation, right? Exactly. <laughs> you're no part of the podcast. You're no longer a guest. <laughs> no, now you're not one of us. Hey, hey that's a callback. That is definitely a, a standard Ray shirt that needs to be in the future. It's just the dice one of us. Yeah. <laughs> yes, oh, I would love that. That's actually really good. Robert, mm-hmm. make that. Get on it. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Uh, since we're reaching the half hour point on recording, uh, there are some player and DM specific questions that I want to get out of the way. If we have time afterwards, we'll go back to general questions, but I want to make sure that I ask everyone their personal questions. Uh, the first one, ooh, do we, do we want to go hard or do we want to go soft for the first one? Oh, it's hard. It's you. You're, uh, you're, uh, navi- you know what? You've been talking this whole time. How about we start with you? How about I take the reins for a second? How about I ask you your question, Mr. Hank? Steph, I like where your head's at. Yes, bring <laughs> it, Steph. <laughs> Sweet revenge for that that one. I believe this one was actually from Billy. It was, actually. Yeah, it, it, I think it's from Billy. Sarcasm aside, how do you really feel about each party member? Fuck him. Fuck every single one of them. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. So Hank, Hank, I always wanted to play as a character in the sense of I wanted to kind of emulate Rick from Rick and Morty, uh, but like with a more moral compass of like begrudgingly doing the thing that he wants to do, like fate kind of dictates that he has to go along with it. Characters I've liked to play in the past have always kind of followed that little trope of like, I don't really want to be in this situation or I don't belong in this situation, but let's make lemonade. And I've always done it with a positive attitude of like, oh, don't worry, we could do this. Aha! Like, you know, the typical like hero archetype to a fault. And I wanted to go with someone who begrudgingly does this through the whole thing of just like, I got to do it. <laughs> So, sarcasm aside, uh, just going around the table, Tia to Hank is like Thomas to the party, where it's like, protect the wee frog lady. You're an NPC. Yeah. (laughs) Expendable, but protect. No. (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) We said sarcasm aside. sarcasm aside, that's right. Damn. Uh, No, he uh, likes Tia, and he sees Tia as very, like, naive in the sense of like gotta protect the rookie Arger he feels like almost like a guiding hand to but like in the same way of like a father who would let you stick the fork in the light socket to learn that the light (laughs) socket is bad to stick forks into like he would let Arger go to a dangerous point and just be like nah he's gonna figure it out no worries but he would stop Arger from doing anything too detrimental in the same respect, he trusts Arger with a lot of, like, the physical aspects of things. Sapala, he would see as, like, his polar opposite, <laughs> which is nice because, like, Sapala is very kind and very nice, and Hank is not. <laughs> and it's almost like, I don't want to say, like, a rivalry, but, like, he sees that it's two roads to the same goal. And uh, butting heads with Sapala was actually, like, one of the favorite things that I had ex- Hank experience uh, when Sapala finally like snapped quote quote and told Mr. Hank to <laughs> shut up if he doesn't have anything nice to say kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was such a good But moment. only to have it come back and have Sapala fail that language thing. It, I think that really spoke of the two characters of Sapala being like moral to uh, I don't want to say to a fault, but like he has a very strong moral compass. Whereas Hanks is a little more loose, so he was totally fine with Sapala screwing up that language translation and being like, you know what? Nothing bad will happen. Whatever. Just to be petty. <laughs> 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 like, and still, while still liking 
Zapala. It's, it's like having your jerk friend that has that little bit of charisma, I hope, uh, with Hank to, like, Zapala's like, oh, yeah, like, I go down to the, you know, homeless shelter and I give out meals and I build houses in foreign countries and, like, his friend's just like, yeah, but, you know, what have you done lately? <laughs> like, fully knowing, like, yes, you are a paragon of good. Mm-hmm. Uh-uh. The person that he would see himself most equal with is uh, Shift, actually. And it's because Shift has two sides that speak to our, uh, to uh, Hank completely, which is Red Shift and Blue Shift. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Angry and, and sad. And to see someone take those things to the extreme, it was like, oh, yes, please, yes, God, someone gets me. <laughs> Especially Red Shift, because it was finally someone who he could be direct to and not feel like he had to walk on eggshells. Hmm. So for it, Redshift to kind of like the bathroom scene is like one of the funniest scenes in my mind. <laughs> That's a great scene. It is such a good scene. Uh, Redshift just coming in and being like, you know, Hank, get the fuck in here. <laughs> is it? <laughs> it was like Hank being put in his place and it's just kind of like, well, I'm still going to be obstinate, but yes, sir. Oh, in general, <laughs> Redshift in that whole scene was great, not just with Hank, but also like with the baby. <laughs> Yes, that baby moment. I love the RP of uh, Redshift, but Blue Shift is still my favorite. You can't convince me otherwise. To piggyback on that then, as a group question, uh, someone asked, or it was Billy again, uh, what season of Shift is your favorite? Blue Shift. I love Autumn. I like Autumn so much. She's like a superhero (laughs) and also an alcoholic. (laughs) He's like the uncle everyone wants. On my side, I'm like, <laughs> Green Shift, like, Tia's interactions with Green Shift is like, cool, you're questioning me. I was a cat. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> like, Red Shift is like, yeah, not not my cup of tea. Autumn's like, eh, alright, I could take it or leave it. But Blue Shift, I don't know why, I just, I adore Blue Shift. <laughs> Were you an emo kid growing up? No, I wasn't. I was empty. <laughs> She's making a motion like a plushie, like she has to hold it. Like, oh, blue shift. Like, right. Yeah, she wants to squish him. I, do. I need to yeah. comfort him. He's blue so shift sad. Plushie. <laughs> actually, funny enough, I like red shift the most, actually. I think he's... he's angry shift? <laughs> yeah, I really like angry shift. I think he's the most direct and he is the most easy to understand <laughs> in terms of what he wants and he's very direct. I think, I think it's very interesting compared to like the... Sad boy, hot topic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. If we're gonna go with Arger, because to me, I like them all in terms of like performance. Like Mike, Mike thinks they're all different, and they all they all bring different things to the table. Arger likes Green Shift because hmm. Arger sees Green Shift as helpful. Autumn is not showing up a lot comparatively to the other colors, uh, but Autumn he doesn't mind Autumn. Red he thinks is mean. That <laughs> mean. And then uh, he cannot stay at Blue Shift. Blue Shift pisses him <laughs> off. And we had that whole exchange where I yelled at, I yelled at Blue Shift on the boat. So yeah, uh, that's true. That was fantastic. Blue Shift frustrating, uh, but Green Shift he, he finds to be the most helpful. So Tony, then the question's now in your court. Uh, who was your favorite Shift to portray? Uh, all right, I got two answers. My favorite Shift to portray is uh, Summer Shift. Because I have a lot of pent up aggression and <laughs> you know, like working in customer service for as long as I have, I feel like I, I just got a lot of anger that I need to let out. But th- what shift do I feel like is the most important to the story is obviously spring shift because spring shift is going to be 
the closest to what shift actually is. Like, shift is, it tries to be as positive as he can, but because of what he's had to go through, he has to kind of almost bury himself in these other personalities in order to kind of overcome the amount of, like, emotion that he's had to kind of go through over the past. It's almost like a self-defense mechanism. Like, I was just about to say that, too. Is a self Are they a self-defense mechanism for shift in your eyes? Oh, 100%. I mean, initially, it was because of the curse that's been bestowed upon him. That's why he constantly shifts, like, seasons. He has no control over it. But he's used that as a means of escaping the situation that he's in and being able to express these strong emotions that he can't otherwise express uh, as spring shift because spring shift is the thing that he's trying to protect. All the other versions of him are the things that he created in order to protect spring shift because that's who he sees as his true self. And even Spring Shift, yes, may be pleasant to communicate with, but if you notice a lot of his responses and allow a lot of how he interacts with others, he's not this just happy all the time kind of person. He uses that almost in and of itself as another means of self-defense where like he is pleasant to talk to because he knows that's the best way to disarm other people. And he knows that's the best way to get what he wants. So... Spring shift is, yes, the quote-unquote happy shift, but he's also the one that will be the quickest to manipulate other people <laughs> in order to get to his goal. And the other shifts, those are the ones that he doesn't have as much control over and is actually kind of controlled by the emotion that they convey. So he can't be as subtle, he can't be as in control of the situation when he's these other shifts. He has to forcibly react based on the motion that's the strongest. Like, for instance, perfect example was the uh, Among Us uh, side episode that we had where, like, any other shift would have been smart enough to just face step out of the room. But because I was Summer Shift, I had to react. I had to confront this thing because Summer Shift ain't no bitch. So, like... <laughs> banjo. So that was... Like, heel, banjo. <laughs> banjo. Banjo, banjo, banjo. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I feel like spring shift gives me the most autonomy because I can control my actions, whereas the other shifts I am being controlled by the season that I'm currently in. The next three questions are from David in our Discord. It's for Billy, Hannah, and Mike. So we'll start with Billy because I haven't heard you for a minute. He has one of the best questions that I never thought of is, will Sapala ever not be afraid of the nuns at the orphanage? <laughs> it's funny because I, I I read that question earlier when you when you showed them to us, and I was a little surprised by it, mostly because I don't see Sapala as someone who's afraid of them. He he, I mean I don't want to get too much into backstory stuff because I don't know what's how much is coming up in the next season or whatever. But uh, long story short, you know Sapala grew up in an orphanage, you know, run by nuns, and and if you do something wrong and none is a stern punisher so that was sort of where that fear sort of comes from of that sort of idea of like a, a nun's gonna like pull your ear and make you write lines and like these are these are the sort of things that happened and for lack of a better term sapala is 
very much traumatized, not by the nuns necessarily, but by certain things that occurred in the in the orphanage themselves. Like what they represent? Yeah, in terms of what they sort of represent to him, in terms of that uh, sort of getting in trouble with things like that and what that meant for him. And that's that's a lot of personal stuff that kind of came from him that... that comes up so it's if he meets other clergy members like if he meet if he meets other priests other priestesses things like that he's not afraid of them but if you like piss off a nun or like they're upset at you he he gonna gets into that kind of semi fight or flight mode of, of panic um for him so it's it's long story short maybe someday we have to see but for now it's there's a there's a reason behind that kind of reaction for him We'll go with the softer of the two hardballs that are coming up. And the softer of the two is for Hannah. Uh, still from David. Uh, why did Tia give up her signet ring? Ooh, good question. Yeah. Tia, number one, she sees less value in the signet ring. Like, it's important, but, like, not as much as royalty because she doesn't want to be a princess. But she knows that it holds a lot of power, and this is her best friend that she's known. She thought it was her best friend. That <laughs> 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 she's known for years and years and years and years and has had no reason to distrust her because she's just naive and dumb. But she just wanted to give her anything that would protect her and help her be safe because she sees her as, like, part of her family. So she gave her her ring because it was, like, I can't physically be there and be like make sure you're safe. I can't physically be here and make sure everything goes smoothly. So here's something that I can give you that will help you be safe. I'm going to ping pong this back to Steph then and feel free to leave this one in the abyss or you know in the unknown category if you want. But uh the question that I hear and some fan theory said here is is uh, was Rain always a doppelganger in Tia's life, or is the doppelganger a recent thing, and is there a potential that Rain is still out there? I'll answer this. Um, Rain was not a doppelganger when Tia knew her, and doppelgangers, in order to become someone, has to see them, so it is possible that there is Rain still out there, um, but the fact that this doppelganger saw her, I don't know, it's hard to say. You know, did it see her as it killed her? I was going to say, is it like the uh, the joke that we made of the Tia 1000, where it's like they have to assimilate the identity and they do that by killing the person? Right. I'm going to leave that open. She could still be floating around out there, still doing things. I say no. <laughs> That's my vote. At this point... If Tia runs into fucking Rain or Tio again, it's just going to be automatic murder. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, she's traumatized. You went to see her and just be like, ah, kill it, kill it with fire. It's a sequel. Well, because she's been <laughs> so traumatized by like having to mourn her brother's death twice. She thought Rain was her best friend, and that happened right before she had to... Not... She didn't kill him, but practically killed her own brother. So it's like, cool, if Tio comes back for some reason, he's dead. He's, she's just going to murder because she doesn't know what to do. Same with Rain. <laughs> it's a kill on site policy. Just oh, yeah, me now. It's entirely possible. It's entirely possible that um, the real Rain is out there somewhere. She's dead to me. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I 
I mean, hey, as long as Tia, Tia, the Tia 1000 doesn't come back in, like, a leather jacket and a shotgun telling us she's from the future, I'm okay with it, so. Well, this time she's here to protect you. <laughs> oh. Nah. But, like, Linda Hamilton, she's gonna have to deal with it. Yeah. It's gonna be a whole arc. Until they retcon yeah. it away from, you know, Standard Array Genesis to Standard Array Dark Fate. That's right. Season two is time <laughs> travel. Oh, no. No. Uh, yeah, shift gets even anyway. more weird. <laughs> This one still from David, and I believe it's actually one of the hardest questions that are on this list, and it's for Mike. If you can't bring Peggy back to the present, how would you want her life to have gone? Which is deep. It's deep. That's that's a that's a deep dive. How many time we got left? Uh, so <laughs> Arger. Well, I mean, the thing about Arger is Arger thinks very basically. So he wouldn't have like this white picket fence fantasy about Peggy. He would just go, if I can't bring her back, then that it's going to suck. He does. He's not going to be happy about it, but he's going to try his damnedest to do it. He's going to do everything he can to do it. But if it's, if it's just impossible, he just wants to know that she had a peaceful life. She was basically, he and Peggy got, were into each other because he respected her as a warrior. And I assume she thought similar to him. So, he wants her to basically live in a, lo- a life where she, her her honor was was respected. Her 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 stake in the tribe was seen as as valuable, and he wants to see her happy. And that's really it. Like he's a really simple dude. So Peggy happy is Arger happy, and if he could be with her, that'd be better. But if he can't, then that's bigger than him to handle. But again, he's gonna he. I don't think he really understands that he can't bring her back to the present. I think he thinks. No, I just gotta find a different way to do it. That way it doesn't work, I'll find something else. Yeah, he did it, so she can do it too, potentially. Yeah, he's like, I, I, can, I can make this work. So if someone comes up to him saying, no, it's impossible, he'll just go, well, she's, she's happy, but I'm gonna try a different method. I'm gonna try something else. <laughs> so I don't think he'll ever give up the, the search. I think he'll just keep trying something else. This might be going too deep, but I just, I wanted to know that if, um, well, I guess, I don't know, I guess I'm asking you as a, as a player, Mike, if it ever gets to a situation where Arger cannot bring back Peggy to the uh, future or him going back to her, do you think that Bucky would be a good match for Peggy in replacement of you? Do you think that they would be, they would be, they would live a happy life together? That's a good question. Um, he didn't hate Bucky. They were rivals, uh, but I think in every rivalry, there's something in yourself that you respect, even though begrudgingly, of your rival. Uh, in any rivalry, there's there's some sort of mirror aspect to rivalries, and he obviously could see that Baki is strong, Baki is brave, you know, Baki is probably smarter than him. So in some ways, he would, you know, find that it would be a, a worthy match. But again, it, it's it's all about to him. It's all about is Peggy happy. You know, is is did Peggy pick him? If things played out differently, if he didn't get frozen, and say they both got uh, the fruit, and she got to decide between the two of them, she would still get to decide anyway. But say she had to pick between the two of them, and she picked Bucky, he would be unhappy. But as long as she's happy, he's happy. So that's kind of he's very simple that way. It's just I I care about her. I want her happy. She doesn't want to be with me. She wants to be with Bucky. As long as she's happy. You know, it, it's it's very, I mean, it's caveman logic, but it's kind of like what society should kind of function as in some ways. If I don't get what I want, I have to move on. 
Yeah, I don't know if I would call that caveman la- logic. I think caveman logic would be if I don't get what I want, I'm just going to hit it with a fucking club I'm until just I get kill what I want. It. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a good guy caveman logic. Let's put it uh, that okay. way. Chicken, chicken soup for the loxodon. Chicken, <laughs> <laughs> chicken soup for the loxodon. I like so. it. <laughs> this next question comes from Grinny, and it gets our final person for their solo question. And we'll do one group question after that because I feel it's a good one. Uh, Steph. Were there any struggles to DMing for a podcast that may not appear if you're just playing at a home game? Uh, if yes, what were they, and how did you overcome them? Um, I mean, aside from the standard sort of technical issues that can come with, like, even folks who are playing from home digitally now, recording issues, sound problems, that kind of stuff, which all that can also occur for, you know, standard games... I think what I found personally more difficult and different was um, having to describe uh, a physical thing that an NPC or that a character was doing because I uh, I talk with my hands. I'm a very acted out kind of DM, so I like flail around and do stuff, and I have to remember that you know the, the podcast audience can't see me making a frowny face. I have to be like, and he frowns deeply. Like, so it was, it was partly reminding myself and partly also, like, if I saw a player do a hand gesture that character was obviously doing, I would describe that gesture. So that way the audience would be aware, well, that that's the kind of gesture that this is the player that wants you to imagine in your theater of the mind. Not only that, but in general, um, when I used to DM in person, and some of the things I really like to do in person and having a, a non-podcast game was... Um, light ambience candles that smelled like wherever we were, make snacks that tasted like, you know, an area. Um, Or uh, I super loved mood music to set a scene, which, you know, that that could really garble audio. But, you know, Tony does wonderful work with the Foley. It's it's not the same, though, as, like, coming up with your own playlist for the moment and when a boss comes in to have that sound, you know, to, to know, oh, shit, the battle's coming and to get everyone pumped. Um, instead, you know, you have to go with the quiet. Uh, but I think in some ways that also helped me evolve my skills as a storyteller because I had to create the tension without external sources, just using the power of words, the power of my voice and descriptors and my player's own imaginations. So yes, it has different issues that might not come up in a homebrew campaign, um, that might not come up in an in-person campaign, you know, as well as making sure that everybody at the table is going to commit to the same schedule, making sure that, you know, some events as a DM, you kind of have to plan for a podcast um, in order to set them up correctly. You know, um, not necessarily railroading, but making sure a story gets from point A to point B in a way that a listener won't just tune out. Um, So like at a table, normally you might meander for a while, you might do shopping. But we don't do shopping on session because that would be boring to listen to, you know. Um, so, like, a lot of the it's, it's a lot of the trimming the fat stuff that's different. Yeah. And with a production, uh, just as like another DM that has been doing it for this season and prior seasons on different shows, uh, a lot of it comes down to DMing with purpose. Because there is, there are room for games that are pretty much just like full on sandbox. Like, 
you know, uh, the common trope that I kind of hear players get or DMs get into is like, it's you transported into the fantasy world and you figure out like what's going on and do whatever you want. And it's just like this big open ended, like, what do you do kind of thing. And for a podcast, you really can't do that too well. Because there'd be, you know, six episodes of the party starts a chicken farm and they're, you know, completely destroying the economy of this town <laughs> by making a sandwich empire. Like, if you did that, uh, the common example that I always go back to is, is like, if you kind of give too much agency, especially on a show, four players would be like, cool, like, let's follow the plot. And one player would be like, fuck it, I'm making the world's first skateboard. <laughs> and they would just focus yes. on that for six sessions. <laughs> It's the yes. difference between uh, playing through Skyrim's actual like campaign and just exploring the world. Yeah. Right. In addition to uh, that, it's also like with a table, you're kind of trusting uh, the DM trusts the players. The players trust the DM to make it a good session with that. And it's like, you know, you follow your basic rules, your session zeros. You know, make sure everyone's comfortable and, like, in tune with the game and having a good time. And with the podcast, it's all of that still, but then also another level of, like, you know, what makes a good show. And so there's constantly times where Steph or myself will check in with a player and be like, where do you see your character going? What's something that you want your character to kind of experience? Like, you know, we see, like, what's the character's arc? Because just like in a home D&D game, like if you give the character like a magic fish and the character doesn't care about fish or magic at all, then it's like, why did I do this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, kind of tagging onto that idea, uh, something that we had to adjust uh, together that Pat pointed out, uh, there's a couple of things that we had to adjust specifically for podcast listening. Like, for instance, when we do battles, we generally uh, will just do like one bigger monster um, because it, it minimizes the amount of time that we need to do editing, that we need to uh, have listeners tune into battle, because otherwise it could get very tedious. It could be like 30 minutes of me rolling 20 dice for small minions rather than just one big in. It definitely minimizes the amount of battle time that we're required to have. Steph, it's okay. I have Fireball now. It's okay. <laughs> I, can ta- I, can, I can mop up the minions real quick. Don't worry about it. Fireball is not the answer for everything. <laughs> that was a big philosophy, too, with, uh, with prior shows. And one of the reasons why I incorporated the skill challenge in my podcast setup style is every encounter needs to be purposeful in the sense. So it needs to be high threat, low impact. So that way it's not something tedious of like, you know, well, there's an army of bad guys and you have to take on 100 people. That can be resolved in a skill challenge a lot quicker and a lot cleaner and give the players agency. Rather than waiting for every NPC of the four factions that are colliding at the walls to, you know. (laughs) So that's just one like little DM trick for a show. And even for your home games, if you realize like players tune out on combat. Just make combat very important in the sense of, like, throw a higher creature out there that does a lot more damage and make the party actually function like a party rather than, I'm taking the ads. Like, make it more of a Dark Souls fight rather than a MMO raid boss fight where it's like, all right, we have 64 players. Who needs to jump at this time? And who's going to A? Who's going to B? It's like, <laughs> no, just just make it big fuck off demon with a sword and a fat ass. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Same here. Thick, thick with two C's. Uh, Steph and Billy have played in some of my games, and they know I prefer bosses versus minions because 
the only one you're going to give a shit about is the boss anyway. It's just like minions, like, yeah, they're useful for XP, but if you're doing a milestone game, it really doesn't matter. You really don't need them. You know, if I, if I set up a, a really bad villain or something, then I'll, uh, I'll try to have it be like a boss fight versus a, um, this not the same exact thing that you just said. I'm just reiterating. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Mike. So, this is a last question for the group, and I feel like it's an important question because it's a question that I've been asked for going, damn, going on six years now. <laughs> uh, Jesus. It's a question that I get all the time. This one came from uh, Grinny again. But I feel like it's something that people struggle with, and hearing it from six different people in different perspectives uh, will really help with it. Uh, which is, what is your advice to be someone wanting to start a long-term campaign either as a player or a DM. Ooh, can I jump in on this right away? Because I have a great answer. Absolutely. In general, I think the biggest thing is to communicate your needs forward and immediately to, to whoever you're deciding to include in your group. I feel like the biggest thing that, I, that a lot of uh, new people struggle with and like a lot of interested players and DMs struggle with is immediately having the conversation even before you start the campaign about availability like commitment like are are you going to commit to kind of like do you want a campaign where someone's coming every you know thursday and if so can you commit to that and if you can't you know then you have to find other players like you have to find the ground that everyone agrees on like you have to lay out the groundwork for what you expect out of the campaign uh, what kind of a campaign you're running if you're the DM or what kind of campaign you want to be in if you're a player. Um, communication is so, so, so key and learning to communicate your needs and, and incorporate them right up front is literally like the most important part to me. My biggest advice, and this goes as both a player and a DM, is be okay with things not working out. Tony and I have been in the same gaming circle for about five years now when it comes to tabletop RPGs. Uh, and as Tony can uh, kind of back me up on too, is we've had a lot of different players at our table. We've probably gone through like 12 before we went to the podcast and even the podcasts uh, that we had prior to this uh, went through some cast changes over the years. Yeah, And people have their own priorities and their own prerogatives. And sometimes that will change either, you know, it's not always maliciously, but like things will change in someone's life and it'll make it so that way you cannot be a part of the same group anymore. And that's okay. Like it's never, you know, something that you need to feel personally slighted about. It's never something that you need to feel like, well, it didn't work this time, so it won't work next time also. It's just, I and I'm specifically avoiding the word fail because it's not a failure. It's just something did not work. No, it's just an adjustment. Uh, in addition to that, for being okay with things not working, and this is to start a long-term game as a DM, you do not have to be the perfect DM. You know, everyone talks about it. It's like, you don't have to be the Matt Mercer of DMing. You don't even have to be like the goddamn DM or the Steph the DM of, you know, DMing. You just need to be as good as you can on your own, and you will become better over time. So a lot of hurdles that people face when finding a long-term game is no one wants to be the DM because they haven't been a DM before. Well, I'm a first-time player. I don't know how. It's like picking up a new video game or picking up any other new skill in life. It's 
something that you need to kind of jump into the pool with and be able to, you know, take the first step, you know, get used to the water. You know, you're not expecting to be a surfing god the first time you go to the ocean, but you need to be at least willing to get up on the board. Um, a lot of first-time DMs think that they need to know all the rules. Uh, full disclosure, I don't fucking know all the rules all the time. Sometimes I have to check, and I've been DMing for like three or four years now, uh, and playing Dungeons & Dragons for how many years now, Billy? Seven? We're looking at eight. Eight years. Eight years, because Will and I just started dating. Right. Eight years. <laughs> so I've been playing for eight years, and I still don't remember all the rules all the time. You sometimes have to check the book, and there's no shame in that. And, you know, at the end of the day, even if, you know, you as the DM make a ruling that's not necessarily the correct rule, uh, once you rule something for that moment, that's the rule and, and you go forward with it. And if later you're like, oh, that wasn't the rule, so next time I'll do X, Y, Z, fine. But also, you know, for funsies, rules are meant to be broken. So don't, like, trap yourself in a box, like, feeling like you have to be perfect at X, Y, and Z thing to tell a story. Uh, just to kind of pick up on um, what Steph said, just for reference, I have also been DMing for, God, it's been like six years. No, it's been longer because I, I came in, I was already a DM when I, when I met Steph for the first time. So it's been probably 11, 12 years myself. It's been well over a decade at this point. And for me, the, the two biggest things that I can, I can say is, as a DM, on a DM side, the, just like Steph was saying, the book itself, like I'm, you can't see it, but I'm holding the book up in my hand. This is, this is a book of guidelines, really. If there's some cool thing that's not written in the rules, if there's something you want to do for fun, flare effect, the rule of cool takes precedent sometimes. And that's fine. If a player wants to try something that's not mechanically there, throw something out and say, okay, let's do a perception check. Let's do an athletics check. Let's see what happens. Set a DC and give it a shot. Like, these rules are not absolute. It is, it is called a home game for a reason. You know, it is made for the way that you want to do it, do it in your home. And the thing on a, on a player's end, I would say, both for players and DMs, the best thing I could probably say is make sure that the message that you, the DM, want to send out is the same that your players want to receive. Because some people are very combat heavy, some people want more story based, some people want, you know, want to have this long epic tale without a lot of combat and vice versa. You know, uh, not every DM is a good match for every player and vice versa. So it's, it's important to be able to communicate and say, okay guys, this campaign's gonna be a lot of combat, a lot of dungeon crawling, very classic style. Is that cool with you? Is that something we're all down for? And if not, that's okay too. But maybe you can, you can adjust, you can figure out a way to make that story happen, but make sure you do communicate the message that you intend for this story and so that your players can respond in that way. If it's not backstory heavy, if it's more like a, let's just kick in the door and kill some monsters. Great. Let's not bring like eight pages of backstory for this, you know, this campaign shot, you know, things like that. Uh, what about, don't you dare smile at me, Curran. I was just, I was just about to <laughs> point it at Mike, because I know that Mike is pretty much as professional of a DM as you can get without getting paid for it in the sense of, <laughs> Every oh time I talk to Mike, it's like, is. yeah, like I'm hosting a game Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Wednesday night, Thursday, Friday. <laughs> and they're like yeah. all different games too. Like, I don't even know how you keep track of all that. Yeah. Michael, let's, let's find out. Michael, how many, how many games are you currently running? Please, please do enlighten running? the listeners. So the ones I'm in, the ones running. I'm, I'm running. Uh, I have three regular. I have one that's kind of on a off and on. So I have three that are stable right now. <laughs> okay. Uh, one that's kind of up in the air and then. There was one I was running a while ago, but that stopped. So I have three locked in right now. <laughs> As a DM. 
As a DM. As a DM. So if you think at home that you can't run a single goddamn game, <laughs> this mess of a human being decides to run three at a time. And it's fun. It's always oh, fun. It's awesome. But I ran a game with 11 players. That's the most I've ran. Oof. Oh my god, the bachelorette party. Yeah. No, the bachelor party had nine. Oh, only mm-hmm. nine? Only, <laughs> only nine. <laughs> Would make me cry. The most players I've DM'd for was 11 at one time. Okay, here's some big first-time advice for first-time DMs. Don't start with 11 motherfucking players, all right? Keep it small, keep it tight, especially if it's your first time. Start with four. Three three or four is usually a pretty safe starter number. (laughs) Strong strong starter. But busting Mike's uh, invincible chops as a a paragon of holding stories upon stories upon stories on his shoulders... Uh, what would be some of your advice for this, for starting a long-term game? Oh, uh, everything you guys said was correct. 100%. I agree with everything you guys have said. Uh, no, But the big thing for me is basically I have three rules I stick to. One, know your audience, which, I mean, we're kind of all pretty much saying, saying the same thing. You know, know what they want, know what, know what you can talk about, what you can't talk about, you know, know who you're playing with. In addition to that, kind of set the groundwork that basically you're the one in charge. Now, that's not to say, I'm fucking DM. Yeah, Everyone don't don't DM to win. Yeah, that that's how I was going to get oh, to that okay. next. <laughs> 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 but I've had situations where I've had to not, I basically have had to tell, tell players, I can't be your DM because you just won't take my ruling as final. Yeah, like a referee. Essentially, I use this analogy. As a dungeon master, you are hosting a party. You are the host, and you want to check in on all your on your, all your participants at the party and make sure everybody's having a good time. Now, granted, are you an adversary at certain points in the story? Yes, you you play the bad guys, you play the NPCs, you play all that stuff. But at the end of the day, you're entertaining people, and that's kind of the way I see it. They went out of their way to make time with you to play your make believe pretend game, and we're all playing pretend like grownups. You should at least respect their time and and make the game worth their time. There are certain rules that I don't use because I think they're kind of a waste of time. There's certain little other things. Every DM does stuff differently. But at the end of the day, it's a game, and it should be fun, and it should be entertaining. And if, if your players are sitting there, like, bored or they're getting, like, aggravated, you're not doing your job. Simple as that. The other thing is keep your notes consistent. Uh, it's the only way I've ever stayed sane is I actually have a system that I use to keep track of my many, many games I run. <laughs> <laughs> My big third thing is, you know, it's okay to start off with, like, nothing, like, have scraps. Like, I've had games that start off with just, like, I've got a couple of players, and, you know, they're starting new, and, you know, start like this and that. But eventually, you want to kind of have an overarching story and goal, and you really, 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 I can't emphasize this enough, you really want to get your players to give you some information. If your players can give you anything, anything at all, to build into the story, and you write it into the narrative... It makes it way better, a hundred percent better. They're going to like it. You're going to like it more. It makes the story more unique. A perfect example is I mean, all of us wrote like wacky backstories and had all our stuff going on. But I've had a player who all they gave me was I am a sorcerer, and you know that's all I am, and there's not much to it. I said, okay, sorcerer. Where did they get their powers from? Oh, they got their powers from draconic draconic lineage. And they were a bland, brand new player. So then I started coming up with all this stuff, like, well, where, why do they have dragon blood in their veins? What, blah, 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 blah. Like, just start pulling from anything. It, the more they give you, the more they're, they're going to get out of it. I could talk about this forever, obviously, because I DM way too much. No, you DM just the right amount. 
alternatively, if that's something that you listeners are interested in and just hearing Mike and maybe some of us others lamenting and talking with guests about it, I've always wanted to bring back the roundtable format and answer questions like these. So uh, if you're looking for that in a show or something, let us know. Join our Discord. It's in the show notes. Tell us. Tell us what you want. And join our Patreon. <laughs> Hannah, um, I know that you've never been a DM. Correct. But you've been in plenty of long-term games. Yeah. So you have a fresh perspective because you're primarily a player in campaigns. Oh, is the player never the DM? <laughs> I mean, you can take season two if you want. I mean, we got no, it's too much pressure. <laughs> Not enough pressure. Too much pressure. But what would you give as the advice for someone wanting to start a long-term game as a player? Then, um, three things. First thing, speak the fuck up. <laughs> Usually, when I start a game and there's a lot of people that are new, you want to take like the backseat and watch things happen. But it's kind of boring if everybody else is doing everything and you're just kind of sitting there. Like, think about if you go to a party, nobody's really talking or interacting with the person sitting by themselves in another room. Do some things. Try it out. The whole thing is experimentation. You're like, explore the world. It's that seventh grade dance analogy of, like, everyone's standing, like, off the dance floor and staring at each other and no one's having fun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so speak the fuck up. Don't just sit there. Don't be a potato. <laughs> I mean, unless your character is a potato, and then be the potato, but, like, really be it. And then your DM probably hates you. (laughs) Yeah. The hardest part is finding a group. It sucks sometimes. Like, sometimes you get fucking lucky, and your boyfriend winds up being a DM for several years before you start dating. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes you do get lucky like that. Sometimes you get lucky like that. Everyone at the table, when they were like, yeah, I've been DMing for seven years, I've been sitting here like, oh, you sweet summer child. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? I got introduced to this my first year of college, and I'm 33 now. <laughs> and I, I, I did two campaigns, and then I pretty much went like, oh, I can run one of these. And they never let me not do it after that. <laughs> Forever like, DM. Like, I, I've, been, I've been 3.5 on. <laughs> I understand your pain, Pat. Yeah, no, it was kind of a culture shock when I started playing with you because it was like, cool, I went from, um, we played first edition in high school with my, with my German teacher. <laughs> first edition to, oh, we're all the way to fifth edition. I'm like, holy shit, this is a whole new world. <laughs> but, um, I've, I've tried to find games outside of Pat before to try to get other DM styles. And like, the hardest part is trying to find a group. Because sometimes you don't have friends who want to play, so you got to reach out. Mm. There's Facebooks, there's game shops, like, you can look around in your local area to find people there, and now, you have a whole world of online people, and with, like, different websites like D&D Beyond, it's so much easier to do it online. It's just a matter of finding a group that works with you and finding a DM that works with you. It's funny that we give this advice on the bookend of uh, COVID, which changed a lot of people's play styles and ruined a lot of home games. But uh, online resources to use, uh, Roll20.net, Discords, any show, any D&D show that has a Discord will most likely have an LFG of people looking for games. And then, you know, Twitter, any social media, like there's online people out there and they play at theater of the mind they play with maps 
So there's plenty of resources. Uh, if I find a good article for it, I will put it in the show notes for you guys as well. Cause I know that's one of the biggest things. It's just like, but the group, how? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Tony, what about you, man? Uh, I, I feel like, I feel like my perspective is just going to come off as like a, like a film school class. Cause like, <laughs> I am absolutely 100% like the narrative player. Like combat's fun. Skill challenges are great. But for me, it has always been and always will be about the story and character development and like creating a world that's immersive and like, so if you're one of those combat players, like just don't, don't listen to a word I'm about to say. But if, if you want to create a world as opposed to just a game, uh, there's a couple of things you might want to consider. If you are the DM, you have three different story arcs that you have to keep in track, keep track of throughout the entire series, right? You have the overarching story, the big one, right? That's, this can, this can go across seasons. This can go across multiple campaigns. This is the big, the big fuck off story, big bad guy, whatever you want to call it, right? Then you have, uh, smaller, smaller story arcs, which are more to do with like, uh, I guess I, I keep on calling them seasons because I'm just so used to podcasting my sessions, but like, <laughs> you can consider a season as like an individual campaign, like, you know, you you are these particular characters before your party decides to switch characters. Like that's a season, right? Uh, that that individual season has its own story arc. And then if you take it uh, if Inception style, if you go a level deeper, it's the individual character story arcs. It's every character you're playing with, whether you are the player or the DM. Every character has their own goals. They have their own challenges. They have their own accomplishments. And, and these are the things, these are the little breadcrumbs, the little nuggets that are going to take your party or your audience, if you're trying to do this in a podcast format, that's what's going to keep them entertained, interested, immersed while you're trying to stel- tell these other bigger overarching stories. You have to keep people entertained at all times. You have to keep your players immersed. You have to keep your audience immersed. And that's how you do it. You give them these little like, ooh, piece of candy. Ooh, piece of candy. <laughs> like that's that's how you do it. Is with you your breadcrumb it, right? You and then you trap them in a box. <laughs> yes, and then you light them all on and you fire. You wonder if they're alive or dead. <laughs> like your friends, you trap them. Is, is that a Schrodinger? Is that a Schrodinger's cat? A Schrodinger's yes. cat. That's what we done. Yeah, yeah we went. We went from Family Guy. We went from film school to Family Guy to Schrodinger. Yep. <laughs> Just keeping it up, you know, intellectually. Highbrow to lowbrow to highbrow. We keep you guessing, folks. <laughs> <laughs> you work like Dwayne the Rock Johnson's eyebrows. Um, now, in exact in exact conflict to what I just said, because I like to be contrary, even to myself. Obviously, the guy who's playing four different characters. As much as you're trying to tell these stories, there's a point in which the, you have to let the stories tell themselves. The worst thing that you can do is railroad your players uh, because you really, really, really want this particular story point to go off the exact way that you've seen it in your head. D&D is not a book in regards to uh, like a narrative from beginning to end. It is absolutely like, like Hannah said, it is a choose your own adventure and you have to allow, if you're a DM, you have to allow your players to control some of that story. You have to give them 
autonomy. You have to give them control over the story because that creates more immersion and it creates uh, more significance to the story in that player's mind. They become more connected. And if your players are connected, they're going to give better performances. And thus your audience is going to become more connected because they're going to connect with that player who is now providing a better immersive performance. So it's this, it's this trickle down effect, right? And the, the way that you immediately kill that trickle down effect is if you try to railroad, if you try to tell your story, because it's not your story, it's our story. If you keep that in mind and you allow the dice to do their job and you allow the players to do their job, you as a DM actually have a pretty easy job. All you have to do is just allow the story to tell itself, have a couple of like, like significant bullet points, but never an outline that's like 10 pages long, right? Stick with the bullet points. Don't write an essay. Write a, like, don't do a, uh, a Word document. Do a PowerPoint presentation <laughs> and leave a lot of those bullet points, uh, with blanks in between. Because your players will fill that for you if you allow them to. And that will create a much more compelling story. The reason why I got into D&D in the first place is because there's so much just... There's there's so much potential for improvisational storytelling. I thought it was because I begged you. Uh, well, that too. But... <laughs> Oh, Tony Maloney. Oh, me, me and Rob were sitting there like, we need people to play D&D with and these guys are dicks. We like and Tony. And Tony fell in love. It's Tony's D&D love story. Oh, God. Yes. <laughs> um, so the way that I justify how I got into D&D <laughs> is because of the improvisational storytelling. And um, I think that's what makes it like the most special, like, that's why I was always into like MMORPGs. That's why I was always into like sandbox games as opposed to like the narrative. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, there's some fantastic, like, I'm a huge fantasy reader, right? So there's some fantastic, like, just like bookend stories that are being told, right? But that's not what this is. So don't make it that. You know, trust one another, give each other the spotlight so that they can shine. Um, and, Everyone's going to bring their own unique flavor to it, and it's just going to make it a better story. Because the more perspectives that you have when it comes to this kind of sandbox-style storytelling, just the better it is. Exactly. And I think that's a good spot to wrap up the standard uh, Q and Ray. Still an excellent title, I did more of this. Uh, you might have noticed that we did not have a mid-roll this episode, because we wanted to personally thank our God-tier patrons, Lucky Potatoes. Dom and Heather Cruz, Aaron Gibbs, and Daniel Barton. Without you guys, we couldn't be doing a show like this. And even people that are the $5 tier uh, or lower tiers, like even the $1 tier, uh, helps us out. And even you, yes, you directly listening at home, just you can support us by just sharing us on different platforms. Uh, anything that you want to say to the fans? Steph? I love the shit out of you. Bailey? I mean, thank you so much for listening. I'm glad we're entertaining. And uh, remember, banjo banjo. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, I obviously thanks for listening to us. Like Billy said, I'm glad we're entertaining. I'm glad I have a place to do my stupid, my stupid, my stupid mammoth man voice. <laughs> it's so stupid. I love it. it, it it's gold. It's glorious. It, I, I love the fact that I get to perform with these lovely people. I, I love the fact that I get to be around great dungeon masters 
specifically, congratulations on a great season, Steph. Oh, Absolutely. I mean, getting real though, like I've um, I've had a lot of opportunity to learn and grow uh, as a dungeon master, and I think as a person, uh, first editor. So um, I'm really excited that listeners genuinely enjoyed it. I sometimes struggle with a little bit of imposter syndrome. Um, so the fact that anybody wanted to hear the story other than, you know, people who I consider, you know, my friends, people I'm friendly with, uh, still blows my mind and still uh, makes me mushy because um, I never imagined that anyone would want to hear my silly stories uh, other than my friends who also want to collaborate with me on it. So thank you all genuinely from the bottom of my heart. Aww. Hannah? I was going to say something funny, but uh, I can't. <laughs> yeah, not a, you, can, you can still say it. It'll just be out of place. That's right, Santa. <laughs> Follow that with a poop joke. Do it. Oh, no. I was just going to say, fuck you guys for making me used to my voice and like it. Fuck you. <laughs> I love your voice. It's so charming. I've gotten used to it. I like it now. Fuck you, because I did like it before. But for reals, I love you guys. You guys are awesome. Yeah, <laughs> Hannah would literally at times be like, "That's what I sound like," and she stopped doing that after like episode two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think Billy had a similar reaction. Yeah, yeah. it was weird listening to my own voice. I'm like, "Oh, okay, this is this is a thing now." Okay, and now I'm just like, "Yeah." Right. If we if we ever do the roundtable thing, I will I will reveal my personal insecurity when it comes to editing and shows. But I will not do that <laughs> unless we do that other format. So let us know if you want that, Tony. <laughs> it's uh, just, yeah, I guess thank you for allowing me to spill my insanity into your ears. <laughs> Even in a non-professional format, storytelling has always been kind of, like, uh, therapeutic for me. It's kind of how I've dealt with a lot of the things in my life, whether it be, like, same trauma, stress, anxiety, whatever it is. It's, like, both watching or both consuming and producing stories is how I've chosen to kind of focus my life. Um, and this has been one of the most um, satisfactory experiences in regards to that. Uh, I've gotten a lot out of this podcast and I can only hope to provide that same feeling to any of you who are listening. So Thank you, and uh, hopefully you're welcome. <laughs> hey, Tony. Yeah. I love you, buddy. Love you too, man. And I, lo- I, I love, the rest of the table, love the rest of the table, but hmm. you guys seriously make our lives shine, and I'm, I've been blessed with such a great team. Uh, I think that we got to wrap this up, though. So yeah, it's we do. Day. Yeah, everyone, everyone, say goodbye because we got to end this. Bye. See you for season two. Check our Discord for more season. notes. Bye. See you later, fuckers. <laughs> <laughs> That's where we're cutting it. That's perfect. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to Standard Array. Help our show grow by leaving us a review on your podcast player of choice and sharing us with your friends, players, and DMs. Also, please make sure to follow us on social media or on our Discord server for our next adventure. Links are in this episode's description.